The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank You that we have this time to gather together as believers to worship You by the study of Your Word and to fellowship around the teaching of Your Word. Father, we are reminded that Your Word is absolute truth and that Jesus Christ said that we are to be sanctified by truth. Thy Word is truth. That Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and that in Your Word You have given us sufficient Information so that we can handle every situation in life because we have learned of your grace and your grace has provided a perfect solution in Jesus Christ and a perfect communication of doctrine through your word. So now, Father, as we continue our study in 1 John, learning about the important, vital spiritual skills that we need to master as we advance in our relationship with you, learning what it means to have fellowship and to abide in Christ, we pray that we would be uh, challenged and that we would respond to the Holy Spirit as He teaches us these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First John is an epistle that is written for the purpose of teaching believers how to have and enjoy fellowship with God. Often we talk about being in fellowship, and that's become sort of a catchphrase, and and it sort of entered into the idiom, but the biblical terminology is not to ha- just have, not just to be in fellowship. In fellowship is a rather static idea. The concept in the scriptures is to have fellowship. It's a possession. The word echo there means to have, to hold, to enjoy, to possess something. It is an active concept. It is a dynamic concept. It is not simply confessing your sin and being in fellowship and in just sort of a passive state. It is an active state whereby we are enjoying the privileges of our position in Christ and we are utilizing the spiritual assets that God has provided for us and we are perfecting our use of the spiritual skills that He has given to us in the church age especially to handle any and every situation in life. All of this is subsumed under certain biblical terminology such as abiding in Christ. That was the phraseology that Jesus used in the upper room discourse when he talked about the fact that that if you are going to have fruit produced in your life, then we are to abide in him. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. 
And the focus of the believer's life is to abide in Christ. And that is, in Jesus' terminology and in the Apostle John's terminology, roughly equivalent to having and enjoying fellowship. And so John writes this epistle in order to tell us and inform us what the dynamics are of the believer who is enjoying fellowship. And he has an interesting structure to this epistle, and one that is, it's always important to understand structure because that traces the flow of an author's thought, outlines his reasoning and his rationale, and as we understand the overall structure of an author, that helps us many times to understand passages uh, contained within that epistle. And so when we look at 1 John, we realize that even though we're down to verse 12 of chapter 2, we have not yet entered into the main body of this epistle. We're still in what roughly we might call the, the introduction. He has a brief preface in one one down to one four, where he introduces the concept of, of life, that, that he's talking about the message of life in verse 1. And this isn't simply the message of how to have eternal life in terms of getting saved, where when we die we end up in heaven. But remembering that Jesus said, I did not come like a thief, to destroy, but I came to give life and to give life abundantly. Those are two distinct categories of life. The first life is everlasting life, life without end in the presence of God in heaven because we have been saved. We've trusted Christ as Savior. The second category of life is a life that, apply, that begins today and goes on to eternity, and that is a life that is abundant, a life that is rich, that's full of divine blessing and a life that advances in understanding of doctrine. And so John is explaining these things because they were first, they were first introduced to the church, to the apostles, at the time of the upper room discourse. And so First John is really an expansion and development of the themes in the upper room discourse. So he's emphasizing the message of life that he has proclaimed and that its purpose, given in verse 4, is that our joy may be complete. That's the end result of the believer's life is joy. Remember that. Inner happiness doesn't happen when you're a baby believer. It doesn't happen when you're just uh, an immature, advancing believer or an adolescent believer. But to have real inner happiness, a real mastery of the details of life where you have stability, calm in your soul, contentment, tranquility, no matter how uh, the details of life uh, come or go, no matter what the aggravations might be, no matter uh, what the irritants in life might be, we are relaxed and calm because we know that God's in control, God has a plan and a purpose, and our focus is on who and what He is and not on the details of life. Then in verse 5 of chapter 1, he begins, he moves from the preface to more of a general introduction of the basic themes. And, and we saw in one five to two two he emphasizes the importance of walking in the light, that that is tantamount to fellowship with Christ, and it's based on doctrine, that if the doctrine is wrong, there won't be fellowship with Christ, and therefore there won't be fellowship with one another. See, it's God emphasis, not people emphasis. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, because when John talks in verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Isn't that important for us to have fellowship with one another? But notice the fellowship with one another is the result of walking in the light. 
If you're not walking in the light, if you're out of fellowship, if you're in carnality, you can't. I don't care how much fun you have with other believers. I don't care how many parties you go to. I don't care how many Fourth of July cookouts you enjoy. You're not having fellowship with other believers. Fellowship is not social interaction with people. See, that's how the word is used in everyday discourse when you're out there among hoi polloi. But when you're talking about the biblical concept of fellowship, it's always centered around doctrine. It's always centered around His Word. This is fellowship. What we're doing right now is the biblical ideal of fellowship, especially since we had the Lord's table this morning. It's centered on the Lord's table. Its focus is on the person and work of Jesus Christ in our life, and our focus is on doctrine. Now, it doesn't have to happen at church. You can be you know, at a restaurant. You can be sitting out in your backyard with friends and talking about doctrine, and that's part of fellowship because it's ultimately something that is Christ-centered. And in order to be in fellowship, there must be cleansing of sin. There must be uh, uh, something that deals with post-salvation sin. And this is such a problem for so many Christians is what do you do with sin after you're saved? It's real funny. We look back on in the early church. They got real confused. They thought baptism was in uh, was related integrally to salvation and that they got real literal with baptism in the early part of the second century and they thought that it actually washed away your sins. So by the end of the second century, people weren't getting baptized until they were pretty close to death because they were afraid that if they sinned after they were baptized, they would lose their salvation. And that just shows how rapidly things got away from biblical truth in the early church. Just as a side point, you always run into people who think, oh, wouldn't it be great to go back and, and be in a church like in the early church, in the apostolic church, and wasn't it so wonderful? Well, what they've just demonstrated is their ignorance of history. The early church wasn't that wonderful. They didn't even understand basic concepts like the hypostatic union and, and the Trinity. They didn't even have the vocabulary for it because those words aren't biblical words, and they weren't developed until the 3rd, 4th century A.D., so Christians have always had trouble with what do you do with the sins we commit after we're saved. And we forget Christ paid the penalty for them just as he paid the penalty for all sin on the cross. And that's the point of verse 1-7. Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But we also need to do something else, and that is to confess our sin in 1 John 1-9. And this is based upon the present session and advocacy of Jesus Christ. In 2.1, which is in turn based on the fact that God's righteousness and justice were propitiated, and that's 2.2. That's just introduction part one. Introduction part two starts in verse three, and there we deal with some principles related to the advanced spiritual life. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him. Well, he's not talking about intellectual knowledge of God. He's not talking about salvation knowledge of God. He's talking about an advanced knowledge of God that comes only to the maturing believer. Because the terminology there is, by this we have come to know, perfect active indicative of of, um, gnosko, meaning that we have come to know. We know this, that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And over in John uh, 14, we looked at the fact that, that Jesus turned to Philip in that discourse when Philip said, well... Jesus, why don't you show us the Father? I mean, Jesus had already told him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he scratches his head and says, well, show us the Father. He just shows the disciples 
were not clicking on. They, they weren't. What was that I heard yesterday? They were a couple of crayons short of a whole box. But the uh, Jesus turns to Philip and he says, "Have I been with you so long and you haven't come to know me?" Philip is saved. He's a believer, but he doesn't know. Really, hasn't come to know who Jesus is, and he hasn't come to know a lot about the Father yet. So, First John three, I mean two, three, and following deals with the advanced believer's life. He is one who demonstrates his knowledge and love of God by applying doctrine consistently. That's what it means by keeping commandments. And then this brought into bear in verses nine through eleven the issue of. Love, love for God, impersonal love, and unconditional love for all mankind, as well as occupation with Christ. Now, that just brings us up to where we are in 2.12. And last time, we looked at the beginning of this verse, where it states, John writes, John says, I am writing to you. He's writing to you, technia, little children. And this word technia becomes a technical term here. And he uses it in this way to refer to uh, the, the whole congregation. These are not the baby believers in the congregation. He is talking to the, the whole congregation. Technia refers to children. He looks on them as his children in the faith because he has pastored them. He has taught them. He has nurtured them along spiritually through the feeding of the Word. That is how believers grow. We grow by the Word. The teaching of the Word under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the filling of God the Holy Spirit, that's how we grow. As sincere babes, we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word, the true milk of the Word. It is only through feeding on the Word of God that we can advance as children of God to maturity and glorify God. So he says, I am writing to you, little children. That's an address to the whole congregation here. And he says, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now here we have to stop and do some technical exegesis in the Greek because this is not the best translation. And we have to pull out some important emphases in this verse because otherwise it would seem as if John is saying that because you're little children, your sins are automatically forgiven. And there are some people who teach that and believe that, that because Christ died on the cross for our sins, our sins are not only paid for, but all sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven. And so we don't need to ever confess our sins. We don't ever need to do that. How introspective and subjective. Just relax. God paid the price. Christ paid the price. Just keep moving along. And that's not what this is implying or saying, but we have to get into the original a little bit to to understand that. starts off, I'm writing to you little children. And then we have the phrase, Hati Afiemi. Hati is the causal particle in the Greek. And it can refer to cause, but it also can introduce a quotation, either a direct or indirect quotation. And it also has an explanatory force. This is not a causal hati, and it shouldn't be translated because that's too strong of a, of a term. 
he's giving a reason, but a reason is not always a cause. There's a distinction between a cause and effect. He's not writing because their sins are forgiven. In other words, that would mean that the fact that their sins are forgiven directly caused his writing. He's not writing to them because their sins are forgiven. He's writing to them because they're being impacted by false teaching. That's the cause of his writing. So he's writing to them since their sins are forgiven. He is writing to them in light of the fact that their sins are forgiven. And we might even say he's writing to you little children for your sins are forgiven. For implies an explanation. For your sins are forgiven. Now the word for sins is the standard word hamartia which refers to sin, missing the mark, is the technical root definition of hamartia. And that's what sin is. It is missing the mark of God's standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short by not just inches, but miles. We don't even come close. We're not even in the ballpark of God's absolute standard of His perfect righteousness. So, John says, I'm writing to you for... Your sins, all your sins, your mental attitude sins. You know, it's so funny. People get we get so superficial on sin. We always think of whatever our our least favorite sins are, whatever seems to shock us the most. That's what we major on is sins. We focus on overt sins like adultery and murder and violence. And then we have, of course, our our social sins that in America we always tend to focus on from decade to decade. Back in the 19th century, the social sins were. Uh, uh, the use of alcohol or intemperance, uh, child uh, labor abuses, uh, labor abuses in general, slavery, uh, women's suffrage. These were the big social sins that the uh, Protestant liberals focused on. Then you have your conservatives who, who react in the other direction and they focus on things like women shouldn't wear makeup and they should have long hair and always have beehive hair. I don't know how many here remember those days. I remember them 30 or 40 years ago where you would see the, the, the holy women didn't wear makeup. You always thought Christians just had ugly women. but uh, No makeup, and they wore, wore long dresses, and you would always see some real legalistic folks who were out there, and you just wondered where they even bought the clothes that they wore because you certainly didn't see them in any of the department stores that, that you frequented. So uh, that was standard superficial approach to sin. And then, of course, if sin is only your terrible two or your fearsome five or nasty nine, then it's real easy to be sinless. Because all I have to do is don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, and gosh, then I'm sinless. And that's what happens with a lot of the perfectionist crowd, the holiness churches, because they limit sin to overt actions. But, see, the worst sins are not just the overt sins. You also have sins of the tongue, which can be quite devastating, slander and gossip and and uh, angry words towards someone can really be, be tremendously destructive. And nothing is worse in a local congregation than gossip. And you get people talking about what somebody else is going through, and how would you like it if they were talking about what you're going through? What you, how they're handling their tests is not your business, and how you handle tests is not their business. We're to encourage one another, but we all fail at times, and we all are going to fail at times, and sometimes we're going to fail miserably. And we're going to make horrible mistakes and, and sometimes commit uh, unthinkable sins. 
and shock ourselves and shock our friends, and we just pray that, that they will extend some grace to us. But are we willing to extend a little grace towards them? So gossip, maligning, running down other people, that's, there, there's no room for that. That's all part of the sins of the tongue. And then the most destructive category of sins are mental attitude sins. Sins of bitterness, jealousy, resentment, anger. These sins gnaw away at our soul and our spiritual life and destroy us spiritually, take away any happiness that we might enjoy from our spiritual life and uh, take away the blessings that God has given us in terms of our uh, activation or application of doctrine and can destroy our life and build tremendous amounts of, of scar tissue and callousness in the soul. So John includes all of these categories of sin. Here when he talks about your sins are forgiven you. Every single sin. Not just the ones that you think Christ paid for, but every sin, even the ones that that shock you or shock other people. Every single sin, past, present, and future, was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now... It says here, I am writing to you, little children. And just as he said at the beginning, I am writing to you, and we talked about the fact that he's writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, so that this is absolute truth. He's writing to you. There we have uh, the Greek second person plural pronoun in the dative case, which is a dative of advantage. He says, I'm writing to you for your advantage. We have the same thing happening again. He says, because... The sins. Now, in your Greek, I mean in your English, it says your sins. But that implies a genitive construction. The sins of you, your sins, possession. But that's not what it says in the Greek here. It says the sins to you. The sins to you are forgiven. The sins that you've committed are forgiven. The sins are forgiven. Literally, it should be translated because... The sins are forgiven to you for your advantage. It's a dative of advantage again because the sins are forgiven to you. And then we have the final phrase, which is what really cracks the whole thing open, for his name's sake. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, partly because we don't use the word name in the same sense that the... uh, Jews and the writers of Scripture used it, but also because the, the translators, especially the New American Standard, shifted the two words, I think. They, they put for at the end, for his namesake, as if they're explaining a reason, and they put because at the beginning as if that was cause. They got it reversed. The hati at the beginning is not causal, as I stated. It is, gives a reason. It's epexegetical, which means that it's just simply saying, I'm writing to you, for the sins to you are forgiven. The sins are forgiven to, are forgiven to you, dative of advantage, because of his name. It is a dia, preposition dia in the Greek, plus the accusative, for name. Now that's important because dia plus the accusative means cause. And what this is saying is the cause for our forgiveness is him. 
It's His name. And name in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament relates to the character of somebody. They often name people because it said something about their character, who and what they were. So when you read in the Psalms about praising the name of God, it's not taking just a label. We think of a name more as a tag or a label and just taking that name and praising that name. The name represents something. It represents who and what God is. You have names like El Elyon, the mighty God, and, and Jehovah Jireh, the God who, who saves. And these are, are, are names that we are to, uh, we're to praise His character because of who He is. So what, this, what John is saying here is, I'm writing to you, for the sins are forgiven to you for your advantage because of His character. The basis for forgiveness is His character. It's not based on the fact that we were shocked and we we're remorseful. It's not even repentance. It's not mentioned. John does not use the word metanoeo, which means to repent. He certainly doesn't use the word metamelomai, which means remorse and brings in an emotional aspect. It's because of who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, I skip past the important verb here, and that is afiemi, which is the third uh, person plural, perfect passive indicative. And the reason is that this is the key to understanding what he's saying. The verb looks like this in the Greek, afiemi, A-P-H-I-E-M-I. It is a perfect passive indicative. Indicative is the mood. It's a mood of reality. It's a mood of fact. So he's stating a fact that about our sins that they're forgiven. The passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. It's a third person plural because it's talking about the sins. The sins. If it was, see, if it was second person, it would be. You are forgiven, but he's talking about the sins. That's the subject. The sins. Whatever the sins might be, the sins are forgiven to you. So the sins are forgiven. The sins receive the action of the verb. The sins receive the action of forgiveness. And then we come to the perfect tense. Now this is where it really opens up here, and you really have to be careful in the Greek. There are various different nuances to the perfect tense in the Greek. Perfect tense in the Greek is not like the perfect tense in the English. Perfect tense in the Greek emphasizes an action that is completed in the past with results that go on. Now, it can either emphasize the completedness of the action or can emphasize the abiding results of the completed action. Those are the two differences. It's either emphasizing the completion. It's not taking away from the ongoing results, but the emphasis, the punch, the bold-faced type is on the completion of the action. That's what's called a, an extensive perfect. If the emphasis is on the continuing or abiding results of the action, that's what's called an intensive perfect. There's another nuance to the perfect, which is typical of most verbs, and that is a nomic aspect, G-N-O-M-I-C. 
And that's not a word that is familiar to probably anybody outside of a grammarian or somebody who loves syntax. But nomic refers to something which is a proverbial, something that is normative, characteristic. It's a general principle, something that is envisioned on many occasions or for many individuals, something that is generally true of everyone at all times, that, that kind of a thing, a general abiding principle or proverb. That's what nomic means. Now, the interesting thing about the grammar, the syntax of the perfect tense is when you have a nomic perfect tense, it doesn't do away with either the intensive or the extensive nuance of the verb. Now, if you got into a present tense verb and you had a durative present or you had a, a, an heuristic present or if you had a futuristic present, if you had a nomic present, it would do away with that, what's called the aspect of the verb. But the interesting thing about the perfect tense is that if you have a nomic verb, it doesn't do away with the aspectual part of the verb. So what you have here is it's still extensive. It is a general principle emphasizing the present ongoing realities. So what this means is that he is writing to the congregation and he is saying that your sins are continuously now present tense being forgiven you as a general matter of course because of a past completed action. Now, what was that past completed action? Well, that's what he refers to back in 1 John 1, 7. It always amazes me that people get 1 John 1, 7 confused with 1 John 1, 9. And what happens is they put 1 John 1, 7, which states a general principle of the basis for our cleansing. And then 1 John 1, 9 states the occasion for the application of that forgiveness if we confess our sins. But you always find people that come along and say, well, because of 1 John 2.12 and 1 John 1.7, you don't have to confess your sins. You're always going to be cleansed. Well, if you're just always going to be cleansed for sin, whether you confess or not, why in the world did John say in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins? If you're automatically forgiven just because you're saved, then 1 John 1.9 is irrelevant. You don't need to do it. Now, one of the things that's not always taught a lot today is this aspect of confession and the importance of confession. If it is taught, it's usually in some sort of guilt-producing way that you need to have go through remorse and you need to contemplate your navel and you need to, to impress God with how sorry you are for your sins. And I'm not saying it, it, it's not wrong to feel sorry for your sins. It's just that that's not what impresses God. See, we may feel sorry for our sins because we just did this, whatever it was, and it just shocked us because we didn't think we were capable of that. And all of a sudden, look at what we do, what came out of our mouth or what we said or what we did. And we are shocked. And so we just go, God, I'm never going to do that again. And God just sort of scratches his head and says, okay, well, you know, I know you're going to commit this sin 15,732 more times, so I'm not buying your sincerity. You feel that way right now, but I know in five minutes you're going to do it again. And again, and again, and again. So don't try to blow smoke at me. Make me think that you're real impressed with your sincerity because that's not the issue. The issue is not how we feel. We may feel overcome with remorse, but think about this. 
You're always going to find people say that somehow feeling remorse or feeling sorry for your sins is part of it. If you don't feel sorry for your sins or you don't feel anything about it, how can it be real confession? Most of us, if we're honest, have a certain number of sins that we commit, like knee-jerk sins, day in, day out, whether it's anger, whether it's being short-tempered, whether it's arrogance, whether it's bitterness, whatever it is. I mean, it just like, goes like this, whether it's just fudging the truth a little bit. Everybody's got some sins that till the day you die, you're going to have trouble with that sin, and it's just second nature to you, and you'd love it. Well, you've already committed those sins 20,782 times. Now, after about the 5,076th time, you just really didn't feel sorry about it anymore. And any attempt to feel sorry, for, sorry about it anymore is just going to be superficial and artificial. And it's going to be manufactured to somehow try to get some forgiveness from God. You see... What applies to that sin is the same thing that applies to the most horrendous sin, because sin is sin, and any sin violates the absolute righteousness of God. And God is not impressed with how we feel about sin. God is impressed by the fact that we recognize that we sinned, we admit it, acknowledge it. That's what homo legeo means, to, to confess. It means to admit or to acknowledge sin. God is impressed with the fact that we admit the sin, and in effect what we're saying, now we don't say it this way, But I'm going to give you the amplified version. What we're really saying in confession is this. Father, I committed such and such an act. Now, that sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. When I committed that sin, it grieved and quenched the Holy Spirit and broke fellowship. By admitting and acknowledging sin, you made a promise that it's going to be, I'm going to be cleansed. I'm going to be forgiven because of what Christ already did on the cross. And because that has happened, I am restored to fellowship and I can go forward in the Christian life. You're not forgiving me because I feel sorry for it. I do. You're not forgiving me because I feel remorse. Uh, I do, but that's not the issue. Or maybe you don't. But you're just looking at the issue of what Christ did on the cross. The picture is a courtroom. Now, some of you can relate to this better than others of you can relate to this. But some, some of us have been known to have lead foots lead feet, a lead right foot to be exact. And we've been known to go through speed zones maybe a little faster than the law allowed. And we've received citations for that. Some of, I know there are some in this congregation who have received more citations than others. (laughs) Nevertheless, when they appear before court, because they've received so many traffic tickets, it's just not a big deal. Now, there are some of you who may, there may even be somebody here who's never gotten a traffic ticket. I can't imagine that personally. But I know that there are such people who exist. I hate to see what their area of weakness is. But anyway, (laughs) there are some people who, who exist who've never gotten a traffic ticket. And if they got a traffic ticket, they would just feel terrible. But to those of us who have received more than our share of traffic tickets, then uh, when we go before the judge and the judge says, well, were you doing uh, 70 and a 40? You know, we're just not shocked. And, you know, yeah, sure, you know, I do it all the time. <laughs> we don't quite say that, but that confession is just as valid a confession as the person who's sitting in there with a, with a whip flagellating themselves over the fact that, I can't believe I went 25 and a 20. It's just terrible. 
See, the issue isn't how we that now how you feel about something. See, if you kill somebody and it was a mistake and you feel sorry and you're overcome with guilt, you might get 10 years knocked off your sentence. And if you go in there and say, hey, you know, give me a chance, give me a 45, I'll do it again. Well, you know, you may be in jail longer, but it may affect the penalty. <laughs> but it's not going to affect the forgiveness. See, that's, that's the point. Because if we treat sin lightly, chances are that in a thirtieth of a second, we're going to be committing another sin and back out of fellowship. And what happens is we just bounce in and out of fellowship and we don't ever stay in fellowship or abide in Christ long enough to advance anywhere or go anywhere. Now, the whole thing is, everything is based on the essence of God. We have to understand who He is. Go over the essence of God. He is sovereign. He is righteous. That means He is absolute righteous. He is just. That's the application of His standard. The standard is absolute perfection, His righteousness. He is love. That means that God deals with us on the basis of what is the best for us. Not what we think is best for us, but what He knows through His omniscience and through His Righteousness, what is best for us? He's eternal life. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, veracity, and He is immutable. He will never change. But the real focus is on His, these elements, His righteousness, His justice, His love, and His truth. We'll just take the others, put them in the background for now. This is what comes to play in forgiveness. We're forgiven because of His name. This is His name, His essence. He is absolute righteousness, so He has a standard, and that standard has to be satisfied. And when we sin, we violate that standard. Now, the, the eternal penalty has been paid for by Christ on the cross, but there are still present consequences. He's just. That's the application of that. And if you're a believer, you're not going to get away with it no matter what you think. It's always going to have its consequence. Whatever a man uh, sows, this he will also reap. Now, it may not be perceptible to you right now. It's, the spiritual life is a lot like raising children. You don't know your mistakes until they're in their 20s. Well, you may not know the consequences of ongoing sin for 10, 15, or 20 years. It's not like raising a kid. You have a three-year-old goes into the red-hot stove and puts their hand on it, and all of a sudden they learn, don't do that. It's immediate response. Sometimes the consequences of sin build up over time, and then all of a sudden we have a deeply ingrained sin habit, and it takes a long time to get past that. So there is always divine justice and there is always divine punitive action to the believer for sin, divine discipline. There is truth. We have violated the truth of God's word, but God deals with us in love because he has provided a gracious solution. Grace is the function of God's love to the undeserving believer. And so he has given us a very simple, grace-oriented procedure for recovery from sin. But to understand it, we have to understand a doctrine that it amazes me how few people understand this. I'm almost being redundant. I'm reading this book on spiritual warfare written by somebody, and I I don't agree with much of what he says. But he has some fantastic things to say about positional truth. But then he doesn't understand what its impact is in terms of spiritual warfare and demon possession and things like that. And it made me realize that how few people really understand the dynamics of this chart. That positional truth means that at the instant of salvation, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, which means we are identified, according to Romans 6, 1 through 4, 
with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The significance of baptism isn't immersion. That's what it means. Its significance is identification. We are completely identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ. And in Christ, we have a vast array of spiritual blessings and assets and provisions that are all ours at the instant of Christ. You don't have to wait a while. You don't even have to wait till somebody comes up and recognizes a two-verse prayer in Second Chronicles called the Prayer of Jabez, writes a best-selling book about it, so that now everybody, if you just repeat every day, word for word, this same little prayer. By the way, I know some of you haven't heard of this because we, we, we're sort of sheltered back here in Connecticut. But in the rest of the world out there, everybody's going gaga over this little book written, sadly to say, by a graduate of Dallas Seminary called The Prayer of Jabez. And he says in there, for the last 30 years, every day, he repeats the same prayer word for word, and that's the, sort, that's the reason he has all his blessing. And in the context of saying that, he says, if you pray this prayer, you too will release the blessing of God in your life. That is classic Pentecostal language, health and wealth, gospel, prosperity, heresy stuff. And see, we don't have to release anything. God gave it all to us at the instant of salvation. This is what positional truth means. It is ours by virtue of who and what we are in Christ today and forever. Now, you may not be using it, but nevertheless, it's yours. For most Christians, it's like having a bank account with $20 billion in it, and they don't know it. But it's still theirs, and it still has their name on it. We're baptized with Christ. Just some of the blessings that are ours, we have been reconciled to God so that there's no longer a status of enmity, but a status of peace. Romans chapter 5. We are redeemed. We have been bought with a price. It's all been paid for. Every single sin. That means we don't have to beat ourselves over the head with guilt in order to impress God or go on with life. We have been regenerated. We are born again. We're given new life. We are a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We are adopted into the royal family of God. We have a new identity, a new family, a new home. We are a new creation. It is not the old creation, but we still have a sin nature. We are freed from the bondage of sin. We still have a sin nature and we can willingly, and we do so often, put ourselves back under obedience and bondage to the sin nature every time we choose to sin. We have a new life and we have to learn what nourishes it and we have to learn how that new life grows. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit, which means we have been branded with the mark of divine ownership indicating that we are God's and even though we may want to try to change the brand, y'all don't know this, but back in the old days when they used to take saddle, uh, take centering off your saddle, the, the rustlers would get, come up to, to a cow that they were rustling and they would use that centering to change the brand. And the only way you could know that the brand on the cattle had been changed was after it died... You cut the brand off and you reverse the hide and you could tell who the real owner was by looking at the brand on the back side. And that's what happens in Jesus Christ. Is there are a lot of carnal believers and they've tried to change the brand and they live just like an unbeliever. And the only way you're going to know they're believers when they die, you're going to discover that they have the seal of the Spirit and they are saved. They can never lose their salvation no matter what they do. 
We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit so that our body is now the temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. And we are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is fantastic. That frees us from ever having to worry about any kind of uh, demon possession. Now, on the temporal side, see, that's our eternal reality. It never changes. But temporally, we still sin. We call this other circle, the circle of the filling by means of, by the Holy Spirit, also walking by means of the Holy Spirit. It's where we are enjoying fellowship. We can't ever get out of the left circle, but we can get out of the right circle. And we do whenever we sin, because we still have a sin nature and we can commit any sin. And when we do, we're out of fellowship, walking in darkness. That's what John says in the first part. But when we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, we are restored to fellowship, and we start walking by the Holy Spirit again. But what happens is that, that as soon as you sin again, you're out of fellowship. And the point is to stay walking in the light. The point is to continue to abide. That's why John and Jesus and John use the word abiding. We are to abide. Why? Because that is the status of being cleansed. Notice the key word in verse 7 of chapter 1 is that Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then in 1 John 1, 9, we have the phrase, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a verse that everybody here ought to know. I was talking with somebody not too long ago, and I remembered something that I had not thought of in a long time. My mother swears, I don't know if it was foresight on her part or what, but she swears that the first full sentence I ever said was 1 John 1, nine. She must have known I was going to need it a lot. but She said that when I was two years old, I could say that whole verse. That was the first complete sentence I ever said. And uh, I'm glad, and I've never forgotten it. But We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's the issue, is cleansing. Now, what we need to do is understand the dynamics of this throughout the Scriptures. If you go back into the Old Testament, we don't have time to look at it in detail, but if we went back and looked at Exodus chapter 29, 1 through 6, we would discover that when the high priest was installed in the high priesthood, he was washed from head to toe. And in the Greek Septuagint, they use the word luo to describe that. He's washed from head to toe, and it pictures salvation. You're cleansed from head to toe. But see, the priest would go places and do things that were wrong and sinful. So every time after that, the priest went into the tabernacle or temple. He had to go to the golden laver and he had to wash his hands and wash his feet. He didn't have to wash the whole body. He just had to wash his hands and wash his feet. The altar also had to be cleansed daily, every morning, every night. There had to be a sacrifice to cleanse the altar. All through here, the emphasis is on cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. Look up the word cleansing sometime in a concordance and see how many times the Jews had to, had to uh, bring a sacrifice or offering for cleansing. Just about anything they did rendered them ceremonially unclean because that's what happens. They're still a covenant people. Being a covenant people is the analogy of salvation. But they were a covenant people, but they still had to be cleansed from sin over and over and over again. Then we come to the New Testament. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13 is the beginning of the upper room discourse when they have just finished the Lord's table, or they're coming in, and Jesus is preparing them for the meal. 
and he is going to wash their feet. And there's a couple of things we need to point out here because it's crucial for understanding other things. Remember, this is why in the introduction I said that John, the epistle of John, is a commentary and expansion and development of the upper room discourse. John 13 begins it. John 13 is where Jesus introduces the concept of cleansing and forgiveness and that this concept of needing post-salvation forgiveness is not just an Old Testament thing, but it's going to continue into the New Testament. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, What I do, what I do, you do not realize now. In other words, he's saying this really isn't a vital principle for right now because you're still under the Mosaic Law. He doesn't die until the next day. But you shall understand it hereafter. It's going to be in the future under the church age ministry of God the Holy Spirit that you're going to understand the significance of what I'm getting ready to do. So he's getting ready to wash their feet. Peter said to him, good old Peter, Never shall you wash my feet, Lord. You're not going to put yourself in a servant's role and wash my feet. Now the Greek word here for wash down through here is nipto. And nipto is the same word used for the hand washing and foot washing of the high priest when he went into the tabernacle in the temple. But it is not the word luo for the overall washing. Now, these guys have all washed. They came to dinner. And in the ancient world, you weren't going to come to a formal dinner like Passover without taking a bath first. Now, every now and then you have to tell some people around here that before you come to church, you have to take a bath first. But we haven't had that problem for a while. So, Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And look at what Jesus says to him at the last part of verse 8. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, nipto, your feet, you have no part with me. And here we get the word meros. M-E-R-O-S. And that cranks open the passage. Usually the way, and for years I taught it this way, that all this means is Peter, if you don't let me do this, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're just really not going to have, have part in my ministry because you have to understand being a servant. It's not what he's saying here. It's more profound than that. The word meros was a technical word used in legal testamentary literature. That's a will, you know, your last will and testament. In legal testamentary literature in order to indicate the inheritance, share, or portion given to the heir. It's the, he's talking about inheritance here. He's saying, Peter, if you don't let me forgive you of your post-salvation sins by washing your feet, that's the symbolism, you're not going to have an inheritance because all your obedience between here and the time you die is going to be in the flesh. It's going to be as a result, of, it's just going to be human good. It's not going to be divine good because you're not going to be in fellowship at all. In order to have an inheritance, it's got to be divine good. In order to be divine good, it has to be done by the Holy Spirit. In order for it to be done by the Holy Spirit, you have to be abiding in Christ. To abide in Christ, you have to have your post-salvation sins cleansed. So he brings in the idea of inheritance. And then he says, of course, Peter automatically says, Okay, Lord, just give me a bath from head to toe. Verse 9 and verse 10, Jesus said, He who has bathed Lua, washing from head to toe, you've already done it. You did it before you came. You're already saved. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, nipto, but is completely what? Cleansed. Katharizo. That's the same word used, cleansed or purified in 1 John 1.9. See, the focus here is not on the act of confession. 
It's not on just getting forgiveness. The issue is we have to be cleansed from post-salvation sin before we can be in the presence of God and before the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work is going to uh, get started again once it stops with our sin. Now, not all the ministry of God and the Holy Spirit stops when we sin. But His sanctifying ministry, now we're still sealed, we're still indwelt, that still continues. But His sanctifying ministry called the filling of the Holy Spirit, that which He produces in fruit in us by the walking of the Spirit, ceases when we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Now let's skip to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, and look at another picture of this. And the picture, once again, is of a fellowship is of a meal which pictures fellowship. We had communion. That's what communion means is fellowship. We had communion this morning, the Lord's table. And that is a picture of having fellowship. That's why we always take time to confess sin ahead of time to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord because it's a fellowship meal where we are having communion or fellowship with the Lord. In Revelation chapter 3, we have the, uh, starting in verse 14, we have the letter to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea is a church made up of lukewarm believers. They are useless. They're neither hot nor cold. They are useless. And they make Jesus bilious. But nevertheless, they're still saved. Look down at verse 19. Jesus says to them, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. When he uses the word love here, he doesn't use the word agapao like he does for unbelievers in John 3.16. This is the Greek word phileo. This is the word where Jesus is telling his disciples that I now call you my friends, philos. This is a close, intimate relationship. Only believers are the object of Jesus' phileo love. So he says, those whom I love, that is believers, I reprove and I discipline, and you're under divine discipline right now. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. Change your mind about your carnality. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not a salvation verse. They're already saved. This is a verse of fellowship. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in in to him and will dine with him and he with me. What's the picture there? The picture is in the ancient world, in the Orient, when you had fellowship, you ate a meal together, and meals would go on for hours. Like when we were down in Mexico over, over uh, Easter, we went to uh, one of our favorite restaurants down there, and the saying down there is often lunch turns into dinner. You know, it starts at 2 and goes till 8 or 9 or 10. I mean, that's, Americans just eat fast. We go to McDonald's or Burger King and we've got quickie fast foods. But in the rest of the world, people will take a long time to dine. That's the picture here. It's fellowship. It's communion. It's interaction. It is a relationship with Jesus. Carnality excludes it. But when we confess our sins, it's opening the door and we experience the benefits of our fellowship. Verse 21, He who overcomes... I will grant to him. How do you overcome? By staying in fellowship. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the churches say to the churches. What's verse 21 talking about? Verse 21 is talking about rewards, inheritance, the meros that Jesus told Peter about. If we're going to have rewards or inheritance, if there's going to be gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ, then that's only produced by staying in fellowship. 
And that's an ongoing, continuing thing in the believer's life. How often do we confess our sins? Every time we sin. Somebody said, well, should I do it just before I go to bed at night? No. Only if you sin just before you go to bed at night. You confess your sin every time you sin. Well, isn't that going to make me introspective? No, this isn't some kind of contemplate your navel meditation. You don't have to think hard. If you do, maybe you're not out of fellowship. You know, most of us, all we have to do is say, Lord, I was arrogant again. You know, Jesus said, didn't name all your sins. He said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. The ones we don't remember, the ones we didn't didn't think of, the ones that uh, we didn't know were sins, all are forgiven. So this isn't some sort of introspective subjectivism that we're trying to figure out every single sin and impress God with our memory. You know, just wait till you're about 60 or 70. You won't have to worry about that anymore. Our sins are all forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. So this is the thrust of 1 John 2.12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you because of His character. We'll come back and look at how that is applied next. Next week. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this time that we've had to look at Your Word and be refreshed by the truth, recognizing that our our sins do affect our relationship with You, but they do not cause a loss of salvation. And that You have, just as with salvation, You have given us a grace procedure in order to realize forgiveness, recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and a restoration to the full benefits of our spiritual life as we continue to grow and advance towards spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never understood the gospel before, that this would be the opportunity for them to uh, understand the gospel, that it's not salvation is not based on works, it's not based on morality, it's not based on church membership, it's based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That He finished the work. That means we don't add to it by our feelings, by our emotions, by our works. We simply rest in what He has done. We accept it as a free gift. We believe He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your destiny certain. All you have to do is believe that Christ died on the cross as a payment for your sins. Father, we pray that we would remember the importance of staying in fellowship and abiding in Christ and applying doctrine, that we are here for a purpose, and that is to glorify you, and that comes when we advance to spiritual maturity. pray that we would be mindful of these truths, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.